0: Bismillah rahim In the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful. The Islamic Propagation Office at Rabwa, www.islamhouse.com is pleased to present to you this lecture. Entitled, The Madhabs," by Jamal Zarboza.
1: <laughs> ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسئآت أعمالنا من يحده الله فلا مضللا ومن يدريه فلا إله الله وحده لا شريك له محمداً عبده as the brother mentioned <cool> today is our second <speech> Lecture of our series, and today, of course, our lecture is about the before, before madhab, before madhab. So, inshallah. Before I begin, let me just remind you that uh, I'm still recovering from laryngitis, so please excuse me when I, uh, when I expectantly cough. Inshallah. So, alhamdulillah, my my voice survived yesterday, and hopefully, Inshallah will survive again today. Let me begin by stressing the fact that these four madhab or four schools of fiqh that I'm sure we're probably all familiar with The Hanafi madhab, the Maliki madhab, the Shafi'i madhab, and the Hanbali madhab. These four schools of fiqh. Excuse me. Don't take my water away. (laughs) They're trying to torture me, I guess. I noticed the curtain was down earlier. I thought they would leave that down for my own protection after yesterday's lecture, but fortunately they took it up. (coughs) These four uh, madhabs they are named after four of the great scholars of Islam. And they are from the point of view of the Ahl al jamaah every one of them, وَلَا نُزَكِ عَلَى اللَّهِ أحدًا, And we do not sanctify anyone in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But from what we know, from our parents' knowledge of these four scholars, all of them did their best to find the truth and to follow the truth. And in fact, all of them suffered and faced hardships due to their desire to follow and to implement and to teach the truth. <coughs> they attempted to find and to derive the truth from the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم. And we do not know of any of them intentionally going against what had come to them from Allah or from the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Therefore, it is our obligation as believers, it is part of our aqidah, part of our belief, our faith, that we love these people and we love them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and for the efforts and for the sacrifices that they made for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the same time though we must recognize that they were human beings and in the same way with respect to the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam We do not exaggerate the prophet's status, as, for example, the Christians did with the prophet Jesus, alayhi salam, nor do we belittle his status. Similarly, with respect to these imams, we neither exaggerate their status by making them out to be perfect. By making their statements and their opinions to take authority over and above the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophets. Nor do we belittle them by failing to recognize them as scholars, by failing to try to study what they have said and understand what they have said, or by ignoring them, or by treating them as if they were just like any other human being lacking in knowledge and so forth. So we neither go to either extreme, but instead we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward these scholars for their efforts, and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept their good deeds and to forgive them for any mistakes and any shortcomings that they may have committed Now, obviously, uh, again, like yesterday, you know, one hour's time is difficult. <coughs> it is difficult for me in particular, and those brothers in uh, Brisbane who used to live in, in Boulder are very very much familiar with this fact. I'm much better at taking a small topic and dragging it over many lectures than I am in taking a large t- topic and putting it into, uh, into one lecture. So it is difficult... <coughs> To try to determine what we would like to say about these four imams and what we will have to leave and hopefully maybe some aspects will come up in the question and answer session with respect to the history and the development of fiqh and we will have to uh, ignore some of the developments and get straight to these different imams that we want to discuss but even before getting to these different imams, we have to define what is a madhab. And I think inshallah, our understanding of the madhab will highlight some of the aspects and some of the importance of studying these different scholars. A madhab, a way or a school, or path, or methodology. When we're talking about the madhab, in Tukh, we are talking about the methodology and the way that that scholar followed in order to come to certain conclusions. And in particular, when we say the madhab of so-and-so, the madhab of Imam Malik or Abu Hanifa, in particular, we should be talking about aspects which are particular to him, and which distinguish him from the other scholars. In other words, opinions or views that are particular to him and which are not held by the other scholars. And we should note that when we talk about these four schools of fiqh, we are talking about, or four schools of jurisprudence, we are talking about four imams, <coughs> four schools, in which the essence, with respect to these imams, the essence of their belief, their methodology when it came to belief or aqeedah were essentially the same. They differed in matters of fiqh or legal ruling. But in general, their aqeedah their beliefs were the same. They're all from what is known as Ahl-Sunnah wal Jamaah. There are some minor differences in particular between Abu Hanifa and the other three imams with respect to the definition of imam and so forth. Uh, the definition of imam or faith and so forth. But, in general, they are all from the same beliefs. They all have the same beliefs, all from the same group known as ahl Sunnah or Jemaah. <coughs> InshaAllah, we'll begin our discussion with the Hanafi school. Because Abu Hanifa was the first or the earliest of the four Imams that we're going to discuss. And in reality, in order to discuss the Hanafi school, we really need to discuss what is in essence the Kufan school. The school of Kufa in Iraq. I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that Iraq was, became part of the Islamic State was conquered by the Muslims around the year 15 after the Hijra, or about five years after the death of the Prophet وسلم during the time of Umar al-Khattab. And there are some characteristics that make Iraq somewhat different from the Arabian Peninsula from which those Muslims came. In particular, there was a lot of different philosophical views, uh, different even kinds of religions that existed in Iraq that one does not find too much in the Arabian Peninsula. And their culture was somewhat different. And Kufa though, Kufa in itself, was a city that was built by the Muslims. It was built during the time of Umar al-Khattab in the year 17 after the Hijra, And it was said that a number of companions, anywhere between 500 to 1,500 Sahaba companions of the Prophet ﷺ, moved there or lived there at one time or another. <clears throat> so this is a city which was again built by the Muslims for the Muslims to live there as they were making their jihad and as they were ruling the land of Iraq. And the Kupin school of fiqh developed and its roots are in the companion of the صلى الله Muhammad وسلم, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Does that child have a question or... And if, uh, Abdullah bin Masood was one of the earliest companions of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, And he was well known for his knowledge of the Qur'an. And it was Umar ibn Khattab who sent him specifically to Kufa to be a teacher. And he told, he advised the people of Kufa to follow him and to follow his teaching. So, Abdullah bin Masud went as the first teacher of Kufa in the year 17, and he stayed there until the death of Uthman of ibn Affan. And of course, he had a large number of students. And many other sahaba moved to Kufa also. And in fact, Ali ibn Abi Talib, as I'm sure you're all familiar with, Ali ibn Abdul Talib even moved his capital to Kufa. So, a number of companions of the Prophet Sallallahu lived in Kufa, and they passed on their knowledge of the Qur'an, they passed on their knowledge of the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad to their students and to those people that they met and learned from them in the city of Kufa. And after the death, or after Abdullah bin Masood left, and after the death of many of the Sahaba, the head or the one who was known as the greatest scholar of that area of Kufa was someone whose name is al Ibn Qais al-Nakhayi. Al-Qamah, as Abdullah bin Masood once said, he said, everything that I have learned or everything that I knew, also al has learned. So Al-Qamah, of course, with a number of other scholars at that time, he became, in, in essence, the head of the school of Kufa. And Al-Qamah himself, he died in the year of 62. 62 meaning the Prophet died in the year 10 after the Hijrah, so 52 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad. And after him, his major student was Ibrahim. And Nahai, actually the nephew of Al-Qamah. And it was Ibrahim who, who learned, who studied under a number of the companions of the Prophet who then became to be the head of the school of taqh. And he passed his knowledge on to Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. <coughs> Hamad ibn Abu Salman studied with Ibrahim for 40 years. And after the death of Ibrahim, uh, he took over the, the leadership of that school. And then we come to the one who took over the leadership of that school after the death of Hamad in the year 120, and that was Abu Hanifa uh, Nauman no, ibn Thabit was born in the year 80 and lived until the year 150 Abu Hanifa himself was the son of a, a silk merchant. Their family had a Persian background, and they had his father or his grandfather had embraced Islam and originally Abu Hanifa's studies were not in the field of Sikh. But originally, he was attracted to philosophy. However, after some time, he turned his attention to the study of fiqh. And he began to study under Hamad ibn al Salaman, the one that we just mentioned, who was the head of the Kufan school at that time. And Abu Hanifa studied under him for 18 years. And finally... When Muhammad died around the year 120, Abu Hanifa, at the age of 40, began to be the head or the leader of the Kufan school. Now, during his time, and due to his reputation, he was asked by the Umayyad ruler to become a qadi or to become a judge, and he refused to do so. And there are a number of explanations why. He refused to do so. Either out of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because the judge. The, 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 the rule or the job of the judge. is A very difficult one. Or maybe out of. Some disputes or differences. With the Umayyad rulers. However when he. Refused to be the Qadi. The governor of Kufa. Had him punished. Had him whipped ten times every day. And after ten after ten days of being whipped like this, the judge or the governor saw that Abu Hanifa was not about to change his opinion, so finally he let him go. After the fall of the Umayyads came the the Abbasid, the Abbasid rulers And also during their their time, during the the khilaf of of Abu Jafar al-Mansur, once again Abu Hanifa was asked to become, to take on an official position in the government, and once again he had refused. Therefore he was put in prison and taken to Baghdad, and put in a prison in Baghdad, and unfortunately he died while actually in prison. He was obviously a man who was known by all the people at that time for his piety. He was known for his prayers. He was known for his prayers in particular at night, the Tahajjud. He was known for his uh, often reading of the Quran and forth. And the scholars of his time had a great deal of respect for him. Abdullah bin al-Mubarak that said, I have never seen anyone in the, in the area of fiqh who is similar to Abu Hanifa. Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, Al-Imam al-Shafi'i narrated that Imam Malik <coughs> was one time asked, have you ever seen Abu Hanifa? And he answered yes. He said, I saw a man that if he were to speak to you about this pillar, this pillar holding up the wall. He said that I saw a man that if he were to speak to you about this pillar, saying that it was made of gold, he would be able to give you some evidence for it. In other words, a man who was very uh, deep and thinking, very sharp, very smart when it came to evidences and the use of evidence. And Ila, uh, Imam Shafi also said that whoever wants to get deep in the knowledge of fiqh, then he is dependent upon Abu Hanifa. And Sufyan authority, authority also said that Abu Hanifa was the most knowledgeable of fiqh or jurisprudence of the people of his time. Now, obviously, there's many things that we could discuss about the life of Abu Hanifa. One aspect I would like to mention is his approach to teaching and how he held his siqq sessions. With respect to teaching, Imam Abu Hanifa was very much different from Imam Malik. Imam Malik used to come and he would just uh, lecture to the people, read to them hadith, read to them narrations and so forth, and they would not dare even speak in his presence. You know, those students who were his students for a long time, out of awe and out of respect to to him, they would just sit and listen, and they would be even too shy to speak. And they'd be very happy when any, any person from outside of Medina would come to the mosque and ask Imam Malik any questions so they could listen some, to some questions put to Imam Malik. However, the approach of Abu Hanifu and his colleagues in Kufa was much different. They used to present a topic, an issue. And they had maybe up to 40 40 of the scholars of Kufa at that time. And they would discuss that issue. And they would discuss that issue maybe uh, sometimes up to three days. And Abu Hanifa, (coughs) being the head of that school, being the leader of that school, he would allow all of the people to speak. And then at the end, he would come up with his conclusion. He would state his conclusion. After all of the discussion and presentation by all the other scholars present. And actually these, (coughs) these discussions or these conclusions from Abu Hanifa were actually recorded at that time by one of the students. But unfortunately that recording has not passed, has not been passed on and it, as far as we know, it does not exist today. Abu Hanifa himself, he did not state, he did not lay down what are the principles of usul or or Islamic legal theory. However, from his statements and from his legal conclusions, we can derive many principles and the sources of law for Abu Hanifa. For example, we know that he used to take the sources. We want to like list the sources of law for the Hanafi school for the Hanifa. First, of course, we have the Quran. Then we have the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad صلى And unfortunately, uh, because I cannot see you, so I don't know how your reactions are to maybe some terms that I'm going to use. So I'm going to have to keep things uh, uh, rather basic. But with respect to the sunnah or the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, he would stress or rely most on those hadith which were most well-known among the scholars and among the people of that time. And then he would follow the Ijma or the consensus of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. If they agreed upon something, he would not go against it. And he would also follow the individual opinions of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And the companions are those people who lived during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. They lived during the time of the revelation of the Qur'an. They were the people who understood what the Qur'an was being revealed about. They were witnessing it in front of their eyes. They were witnessing how the Prophet ﷺ himself was implementing the Qur'an. And if they had any doubt or any question or any under- misunderstanding they could go directly to the Prophet ﷺ and ask the Prophet ﷺ about any issue. So you find in all of the schools of fiqh, they <clears throat> they take into consideration and they respect highly the statements of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. For example, Abu Hanif himself has been recorded to say that I take the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if I find a ruling about any issue in it, then I follow it. Otherwise, in other words, if the Qur'an is silent about something, then I follow the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If I do not find anything in the book of Allah, or the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, then I take the statements of his companions. And I take whichever among them I wish, And I leave whichever among them I wish. In other words, he would study them if they differed. He would study them to see which of them or which of their opinions seemed to be closest to the Quran and Sunnah. And he would follow them and leave the other opinions. And he would not leave their opinions for the opinions of anybody else. However, if he found, in other words, if he did not find anything in the Quran or the Sunnah or the statements of the Sahaba. But the matter became a matter of ijtihad or juristic reasoning of those people among, or those people who came after the Sahaba. Then he said, I make ijtihad like those people make ijtihad. In other words, and he, after the time of the Sahaba, there's no special, uh, place for those people necessarily, and he makes ijtihad concerning those matters. After that, he would rely upon, uh, qiyas or analogy. In other words, if something wasn't discussed in the Qur'an or Sunnah directly, then he would make an analogy or he would look to see what the Qur'an or Sunnah says about something similar to it. And he would make the same ruling for that new case as, as in the case uh, stated in the Qur'an or Sunnah. For example, uh, if you wanted to uh, take a case, for example, of some kind of... Uh, Uh, I have to be careful in the Hanafi school because I was going to say intoxicants, but they have a different view of that. But if you wanted to take like the case of heroin, and we see what the Qur'an says about the khamar or alcohol, then since the ruling of alcohol is forbidden, then also the ruling concerning uh, heroin would also be forbidden. (coughs) He also followed something known as istihsan. Well, inshallah, if there's any questions about that, I will leave that uh, for the question and answer. Uh, Some of his main students included Abu Yusuf. Abu Yusuf studied with Abu Hanifa for nine years until Abu Hanifa passed away. And then Abu Yusuf traveled to Medina to study. And when he traveled to Medina, he studied under Imam Malik. So, this is one of the major students of Abu Hanifa going to Medina to, to study under Imam Malik. And in fact, Abu Yusuf, uh, after studying uh, uh, with Imam Malik and, and learning many of the hadith that were in Medina, which was the home of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, that perhaps the people of Iraq did not know, he changed his opinions on many issues. He, he changed... Or he went against the opinions of Abu Hanifa, his teacher, on many issues. And on many cases he would say, for example, that if my teacher, meaning Abu Hanifa, if my teacher knew what I now know, he also would follow this new opinion. Well, Abu Hanifa became a chief qadi, a chief judge. And he was very instrumental in spreading the Hanafi madhab. Another one of the important students of Abu Hanifa is Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shibani. He studied with Abu Hanifa for three years until Abu Hanifa died. And then he continued to study with Abu Yusuf. And he also went to Medina to study with Imam Malik. And in fact, (coughs) he learned all Imam Malik has a book known as Al-Muakta. Probably many of you are familiar with it. There's a couple of English translations available of it.
0: Uh,
1: Imam Muhammad Ibn al-Hassan al-Shabani. He learned that book directly from Imam Malik himself. And up to this day, one of the most important narrations of that book is from Muhammad, uh, the student of, of Hanifa. After he went back to Kufa, after he went back to Baghdad actually, the same Muhammad al-Hassan al-Shibani is then later in his life he debated or he sat with Imam al-Shafi'i uh, to discuss many points and many issues. <coughs> and it is this actually it is Muhammad al-Hassan al-Shibani who had written the most uh, in the Hanafi school and was the most um, and in most of the writings most of the opinions of Abu Hanifa we know them through the writings of. Uh, Muhammad Ibn Hassan al and his students. And this is the development, this is what later, or what became known, of course, during the time of Abu Hanifa and afterwards, this is what became known as the Hanafi school. At the same time, of course, as this school was developing in, in, uh, in Kufa, another school was developing in Medina. And this school Of course, because Medina has some characteristics that separate it from the other parts of the Muslim world, the fact that the Prophet lived there, the fact that even after the death of Prophet many of his companions continued to live there. And one very important aspect that we see about Medina that is not true for Iraq and many of the other areas is that Medina was one area be free of any kind of innovations, any kind of heretical thinking that are found in some of the other areas, including Iraq. So this school that developed in Medina started basically with Umar al-Khattab. He was, you could say, the founder and the main, among the Sahaba, the main leader of this school. And then there's also Zayd ibn Thabit. And then the son of Omar al khattab Abdullah bin Omar. And then Aisha, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ. These were the leaders of this school and the founders of the school. In other words, it is their ideas that were passed on. They were the major people whose ideas were passed on. And whose ideas formed the foundation of this school that was developing in Medina. And after them... Uh, after that generation, these are among the Sahaba. All the people that I mentioned were among the Sahaba. In the next generation known as the Tabi'in, in the school of Medina, there were seven seven people who began to be known worldwide as the seven fuqaha or the seven jurists of Medina. And these seven jurists also, they were well known for uh, being the leaders of fiqh at that time, and also their opinions were also recorded and included in some books, and some of those books actually exist to this to this day in manuscript form. The most important one among those seven of the scholars, uh, the seven fuqaha of Medina, was a scholar by the name of Saeed ibn al-Musayyib. Saeed ibn musayyib was very well known for his knowledge of Hadith. And he was, in fact, someone who used to sacrifice much of his time and effort to learn hadith and to get hadith. As he himself said, <coughs> I would travel for days and nights at a time in search of one hadith. And to get one hadith from his source, he would travel for days and nights. In another narration, he said, I would travel for three nights or three days in order just to verify one hadith of Prophet And he was nicknamed al Jari, or the one who was very bold. He was known as one being very bold in giving fatwas, in giving uh, rulings, Islamic rulings, or expressing his view on certain issues. And the reason he was so bold is not because uh, he was quick to give his opinion about things, but because he had so much knowledge of the Sunnah, of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and then of the Qur'an, and of the statements of the Sahaba, and the knowledge of the Sahaba, that he had a big, so to speak, a big database to work from, that he was very quick and very easy, he could give you the opinions of the early scholars on many different issues. Then after him comes the next generation, or the next leaders in the school of of Medina, which includes the Zuhri, and uh, Nafi' the free slave of uh, Ibn Umar and these are the people who were the teachers of Imam Malik and Imam Malik was born in the year 95 Abu Hanif again was born in the year 80, Imam Malik was born in the year 95, he was born in Medina his grandfather was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and one thing that distinguishes Imam Malik from most of the other scholars at that time is that Imam Malik did not travel in search of hadith or in search of knowledge to the different locales as most scholars did at that time but he remained in Medina and spent almost all of his life in Medina and the only time he left Medina was to go and make hajj. Imam Malik was also beaten and tortured by the rulers of his time. This was during the time of the uh, Abbasid rulers, or Khilafa. He gave a fatwa, or he gave a ruling, that if someone was coerced, was forced to divorce his wife, then that divorce is not considered a valid divorce. And because of this ruling, he was sever- severely beaten by the rulers at that time. And the reason, I mean, you might be wondering why a ruling like that would lead the, the rulers to, uh, doesn't, it's not because the ruler had divorced his wife under such circumstances, but it was because the, the rulers at that time, they took a pledge of allegiance from the people. And they took that pledge of allegiance, they forced, it, in, in essence, they kind of forced the people to abide by that Pledge of Allegiance. By When they made the Pledge of Allegiance, they forced them to say that if I break this Pledge of Allegiance, then my wife is divorced. So basically, uh, Imam Malik's fatwa that such a divorce, and he did not state it specifically while talking about that case, but in essence, his ruling was such a divorce is not a valid divorce, and so from the government point of view, this would allow people more freely to break their pledge of allegiance. Uh, because of that, he was beaten severely by the rulers. <coughs> now, Imam Malik also, obviously, was highly praised by the scholars of his time. <coughs> Uh, for example, Malik, uh, I mean, Imam Shafi, used to say that Malik is the proof or the, any, the establishment of Allah's proof upon his creation. In other words, Imam Malik's teachings were such that it proved the correctness of Islam or showed or demonstrated the correctness and brilliance of Islam. And he also said, Shafi also said that if the scholars are, are mentioned... Then Imam Malik is their star or their leader. And Al Bukhari says that the strongest, Al Bukhari, the one who compiled the Sahih Bukhari, he said that the strongest isnad, the best isnad there is, is the isnad of Imam Malik from his teacher Nasa, from Ibn Umar, from the Prophet Muhammad صلى Now, obviously, again with respect to Imam Malik. There's many aspects that we could discuss about his life. So I just, on all these, I'm just kind of highlighting one aspect or so. I would like to add, as with respect to Imam Malik, I would like to emphasize his attitude towards knowledge and the emphasis that he placed on knowledge and sacrificing for the sake of knowledge. I am emphasizing this because nowadays many times, and we kind of want the knowledge to be given to us, so to speak, on a silver platter. And if there's some program that we could get, we could benefit from, that we could get knowledge from, you know, if it's not at the time that is convenient for us, if it's not in the place that is convenient for us, then we're not going to bother with it, even though we may lose a great deal of knowledge and not be able to benefit from that knowledge. So, Imam Malik, his life over and over demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of getting knowledge. And he he even said that no one will be able to attain what he wants of this knowledge until this knowledge afflicts him with poverty and he gives it preference over all of his other needs. In other words, if he really wants this knowledge, he should put it first and foremost and sacrifice everything else for the sake of this knowledge. His teacher Nafa' used to live on the outskirts of Medina. And Imam Malik used to go to the outskirts of Medina and sit in the sun with no shade to protect him and wait for Nafa' to come out of his house so he could speak with him and learn from directly from Nafa'. He even got to the point that he even sold part of the wood of part of the ceiling from his house in order to uh, sustain himself, in order to uh, continue to attain the knowledge. <clears throat> Another aspect that we see in Imam Malik, which is something directly coming from Ibn Amr and the other people in this Medinan chain, And that is his caution when it comes to speaking about the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That he would not speak unless he had firm knowledge of what it is that he wanted to say. Or what it is that that he really knew about what he was saying. Some of the students narrated, for example, that some people came from a journey of six months. And other narrations mentioned that they came like from North Africa. And they came to Imam Malik to ask him questions. And in some of those narrations it mentions like, this man came and asked, asked him like 36 questions, or 30 questions, different narrations. And to the vast majority of them, to like 30 out of those 36, Imam Malik said, I don't know. So the man said, you know, I came all this way, and sometimes when people call me, they kind of do the same thing. <laughs> you know, I came all this way, and the people said, I should ask you, and I'm coming, and I'm asking you, and you're saying you don't know. And Imam I like, said, what can I say? I don't know. And you cannot make up something. You have to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to this knowledge. And you cannot say something unless you're firm about what is correct. And that is something that we see in particular in the, in the Medinan school. So if we look at his sources of fiqh again, Imam Malik himself did not record his own uh, methodology. He did compile a book, as we know, it's called al It still exists today. It's a book mostly of hadith and statements of the Sahaba, the companions and, and the following generation. But we see that himself, he followed the Quran, of course. He followed the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad صلى الله عليه he followed the ajma of the companions, and he also followed the ajma and the, and the practices of the people of Medina. Because for him, he considered the practices of the people of Medina, especially those practices that they were all basically agreed upon. He is basically arguing, and again, he lived, you know, a hundred years after the Prophet ﷺ and, and, and some more. And he basically saying that these practices come from the time of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, And they are like the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. So he used to consider them an authority and make his conclusions based on those practices of the people in the Medina. And he would also follow the individual opinions of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And he would also make what is known as qiyas or analogy as we described before. And he had a concept similar to al-istihsan for uh, for the Hanafis, known as al-istislah. And he would also follow the customs, or uh, if the customs had established something, he would accept that and follow those customs. And again, because of time, if there's some specific question about those aspects, inshallah, we'll discuss it in the question-answer session. There's also another point. That we do not have time to, to discuss in detail right now. And that is the fact that when referring to these two schools, many times they are called Ahl al-Ra'i and Ahl al-Hadith. Ahl al-Ra'i and Ahl al-Hadith. Which one, uh, one brother in his book on Tukh, he, just, he he translated this as the people of Hadith. And the people of reasoning. I don't think this is the best translation, but Ahl al-Hadith are, are, you could say, those people who are following the Hadith of Prophet And Ahl al-Ra'i are those people who are resorting to personal opinion. And as I said, we don't have time to discuss this in detail, but it is kind of an unfair, it is kind of an unfair, uh, way of describing them. Basically the people of Kufa, the school of Kufa, the Hanafi school, became known as Ahl-Ra'i, the people of personal opinion, and the Medinan school, according to many scholars, although many of the historians, even many of the Maliki scholars, they consider Imam Malik to be from Ahl-Ra'i, but anyway the Medinan school was known as Ahl-Hadith. And obviously both, both of these groups of scholars, in the Kufa and Kufa and in, in Medina, both of them followed the Quran and both of them followed the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu None of them ever knowingly, willingly went against the Hadith of the Prophet However, those people who were known as Ahl al Hadith, they emphasized the, the study of Hadith and, and searching and seeking more Hadith and seeking more narrations from the Sahaba and the companions and other words. And that was their concentration in their study. But the other people who are known as Ahl al-Rai, they also concentrated on, they did not concentrate necessarily on learning more hadith and, 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 and continuing to add to the database of hadith, but they concentrated on studying the Sharia, and studying the um, the, the legal causes in the Sharia. For example, You know, why are some things haram, why are some things halal? And based on that study, to make some conclusions for new cases. And they also had a tendency to study or to discuss cases that did not yet exist, hypothetical cases. To the point they even became known as the what-ifers. You know, what if this, what if that, what if this. And that's basically the difference between Ahl al-Hadith and Ahl al when we're talking about the Hanafi school, or the Kufi school, and the, and the Medellin school, or the Manatee school. So, of course, and the next scholar is Imam al Imam Ashafi was born in the year of 150, the year 150. He was born in, in Palestine, to a Qurayshi family, a family from the Quraysh in Mecca, and when he was young, he moved to Mecca and he grew up, uh, his early years in Mecca. He spent some time with the Bedouins. Uh, he became proficient or became an expert in the Arabic language. He also learned the principles of Tafsir according to the Meccan school, which was virtually the school of Ibn Abbas in Tafsir. After some time, he, he, he left Mecca and he went to Medina. And in Medina, he studied with Imam Malik. And he learned also al-Muatta directly from Imam Malik. And he stayed with Imam Malik until Imam Malik passed away. After Imam Malik died, al-Imam al-Shafi'i moved to Yemen. And while he was in Yemen, (laughs) while he was in Yemen, some rumors began to be spread that he was supporting some of the descendants of Ali who were uh, in opposition to the rulers at that time. So he was taken in chains from Yemen to Baghdad during the time of Harun al Rashid. However, after some interrogation and some uh, clarification, it was found that he was free of the charges and he was allowed to go. So he remained in Baghdad. And he met with Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al shibani Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al shibani is the same one we mentioned earlier. Who was one of the leading students of Abu Hanifa. So at that time Imam al-Shafi'i he came in essence representing the Maliki or the Medinan school. And he used to meet and debate with uh, Muhammad al-Hassan al And through this, of course, he was able to, in essence, grow, develop his thought even further. He went back to uh, Mecca and then he came back to Baghdad. And when he came back to Baghdad, that second time, he began to be known as a scholar, as the leader of uh, his own fiqh. And he began to write some principles of usul fiqh or the principles of fiqh, while in, Medi- in Baghdad and Iraq. And then he moved to Egypt. He moved to Egypt basically with the purpose of meeting with Alayk Ibn Saad, who was the leading scholar of Egypt at that time. And in fact, the shafi himself said about the Layth Ibn Saad that he was a greater scholar than Imam Malik, but his students failed in propagating. His teachings very well. So his teachings kind of died out. So he arrived in Egypt after, um, after uh, late died. And in Egypt, he again, he still further developed and matured in his thoughts and began to develop what is known as his, and he, when he was in Iraq, the teachings, his teachings in Iraq became known as his old madhab, his old school, and as he developed further when he was in Egypt, he began what is known as his new school, his new madhab. and it was in Egypt during this time that he developed much of his usul, much of his uh, legal theory that we will discuss in just a moment inshallah now obviously also Imam al-Shafi'i was greatly respected and greatly praised by the scholars of his time. For example, uh, Abdullah ibn Ahmed, the son of, uh, of Ahmed ibn Abbal, uh, Ahmed Hambal. Hambal. <coughs> I'm, I'm glad that in Australia you have good construction because by now the roof would have fallen probably in many parts of the United States. So. Uh, Abdullah, the son of Imam Ahmad said to his father, he said, what kind of man was Imam al For I hear you make dua, I hear you praying a lot for him. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal said that Imam al-Shafi, al-Shafi was like the sun for the earth and like health for mankind. He said, think about it. Is there anything other than these two that the people can get by without or any substitute for these two? And he was like the sun for the earth and health for mankind. In fact, uh, Imam Ahmed also said that I don't know of anyone who has done greater favors for Islam during the time of a Shafi'i other than a Shafi himself. And I... In my prayers, I make du'a saying, Oh Allah, forgive me and my parents and forgive Muhammad ibn Ibris al-Shafi'i. And the first person who really sat down and to write the theory of usul al-fiqh or Islamic legal theory and how legal theory should be uh, managed and handled, it was Imam al-Shafi'i. He wrote a book Called Ar-Risala, and this book also is, is available in English. Uh, I believe it's called Ar-Risala or something. I believe that they left that name in English. Basically, what he found was, since he was very much familiar with what had developed in Medina and what had developed in Kufa, and he found that there were some. Uh, In some ways, people were not applying the principles correctly, and each school was strained somehow in some aspects. So therefore, he tried his best to emphasize the correct aspects of both schools, and he tried to correct some of the aspects uh, of the schools that were not exactly correct. So, for example, in Al-Risala, he stresses what is the correct way to understand the Qur'an based on the principles of the Arabic language and based on what had been passed on from the time of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم. And in Al-Risala also, he emphasized the importance of following the Hadith or the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم. And he emphasized the fact that if there has come a Sunnah, no one has the right to say anything or to follow any other opinion if that hadith is authentic. As soon as the hadith is considered authentic by the scholars, then no one has any right to state any opinion that goes against what is stated in that hadith of Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he was in essence, his goal was to try to take the people during his time, to try to take them back, to the way of thinking, or the way of legal theory that we find, based on the Qur'an and based on the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم. So obviously his sources, and and when we talk about, nowadays, for most of you who have studied uh, Islamic legal theory, a basic introduction to Islamic legal theory, whether you realize or not, you are basically, uh, the essence of it, you are actually, Studying that which was laid down by Imam al When we say that the, the sources of the Sharia are four, we say the Quran, the Sunnah, uh, consensus, ajma'ah, and analogy, or qiyas, we are actually following what has been laid down by Imam al-Shafi'i. And in his writing, al-Risala, basically why it has come to that point is because he was able to convince most of the people and many of the people who came after him that this is the correct approach and these are the four basic sources of the Sharia. And the next and the last of the four Imams was <coughs> the last of the four Imams was Ahmed Ibn Hanbal was born in the year 164. Early in his life, Imam Ahmed studied with Abu Yusuf, the student of Abu Hanif. However, because Abu Yusuf concentrated on fiqh, and Imam Ahmed, you could say his first love or what he was most devoted to was hadith, he turned his attention to hadith, and it became perhaps the greatest scholar of Hadith, or at least during his time, the greatest scholar of Hadith. And he traveled far and wide to learn, he visited all the main centers of Islamic learning to gather together the Hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And in fact, one of his teachers later in his life would be Imam al-Shafi'i himself. And Imam al-Shafi'i told uh, Imam Ahmad, Oh, Aba, oh, yeah, Abu Abdullah. Oh, Abu Abdullah. Who was, which was uh, Ahmed Kunya. If the hadith is authentic in your opinion, or if there is a hadith which is authentic in your opinion, then teach it to me so I may follow it. And it was Imam Shafi talking to his students. Imam Ahmed, who had become a greater scholar in the field of hadith than Imam Shafi himself. So he said, if there's a hadith which you know which is authentic, please teach it to me so that I may follow it. And of course, uh, Imam Ahmed himself was probably best, or was probably best known for his collection of hadith, which is known as Musnad Ahmed, which, which contains over 30,000 hadith before Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. With respect to fiqh, he did not compile any collection or works on fiqh, and in fact, he disliked, he disliked for anyone to record his fiqh opinions. However, due to the need of knowing that knowledge, some of his students later did record his fiqh opinions in the form of questions that they had put to Imam Ahmed, and they recorded Imam Ahmed's response. And in fact, one of those students who has a collection or a book known as Musa'il al- al-Imam Ahmed, a questions that were put to Imam Ahmed, is Abu Dawud. And Abu Dawud is probably most known for you for his collection of Hadith known as Sunan Abu Dawud. Abu Dawud was a student of Imam Ahmed, Al-Bukhari was a student of Imam Ahmed, and Muslim, the compiler of the Sahih, was also a student of Imam Ahmed. Now, unfortunately, Uh, unfortunately with respect to fiqh, it became kind of known among some circles that uh, Ahmed actually was not a Fiqhi. he was not a jurist, he was just a scholar of hadith. And so al-Tabari, uh, al-Tabari, when he compiled a work about the differences of opinion among the major Fuqaha, he excluded Imam Ahmed. He didn't consider him a jurist. And unfortunately this stigma, so to speak, kind of stuck with him. And many of the later works after Tabari, which also discussed the difference of opinion among the jurors, they also did not include Imam Ahmed. But it seems pretty clear that and it was the case that Imam Ahmed was the faqih. In fact, uh, again, Imam Shafi'i, who we just finished talking about, he said about his student, Imam Ahmed, he said, Imam Ahmed is an imam. A imam, a leader, an authority in eight different categories. He is the imam in hadith, he is the imam in fiqh, he is the imam in language, the Arabic language, in the Quran, in fiqh or being poor, or living a, a, a simple life, in zahad, and renouncing this world, or uh, well, let's leave it renouncing this world right now. what waraa or fear of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and in the Sunnah of the Prophet So Imam Shafi himself, who was one of the greatest, of course, scholars of Fiqh, said that Imam Ahmed was a scholar of Fiqh. And in fact, what what some of Imam's students said about him is that in fact Imam Ahmed, who used to study, as we mentioned, study with Abu Yusuf, he knew the opinions of the of the jurists, but he wasn't interested in passing on those opinions of, of the jurists because he knew the opinions or he knew first the hadith of Prophet and he knew the statements and opinions of the companions so therefore whenever he was asked a question he would give either a hadith or one of the statements of the companions of the Prophet instead of giving some of the opinions of the later jurists. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal like all of the other scholars that we mentioned, all of the other three scholars, was also heavily persecuted uh, during the trials concerning the creation of the Quran. The government under the influence <coughs> under under the influence of a heretical uh, group, they tried to force people to say that the Qur'an was created. Imam Ahmed refused. He was, he was beaten. And he was put in jail for two years. Many scholars at that time. They, they acquiesced. And they, and they accepted. And they said what the government forced them to say. And they considered that. a uh, Situation of duress. And force. And they were excused for that. But Imam Ahmed himself refused to do that. And he refused even the idea of doing that. And he, in fact, afterwards, he stopped accepting hadith from those scholars who bowed down to the pressure of the government and were willing to say what the government was forcing him to say. Uh, he was freed after two years. But then again, later, during the time of one of the other uh, khulafa, uh the same kind of inquisition and the same kind of trial started again. So Imam Ahmed was forced to go into hiding for five years until the Khalifa finally al Mutawakkil came and put an end to those trials and established the belief of the Ahl al Sunnah about the creation of the Quran. And so therefore Ahmed was able to return to public life and he continued teaching until his death in 241. <coughs> imam al-Shafi'i said about Imam Ahmad that they have left Iraq and I have not uh, left any person more virtuous, or more knowledgeable, or more pious, or more God-fearing. I have not left any person in Iraq more, more virtuous, more knowledgeable, more God-fearing, and more pious than Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And of course, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, the sources of his school, of, of his fiqh, were the Qur'an, of course, the sunnah, of the Prophet وسلم, the of the companions the individual opinions of companions of the Prophet Muhammad and also analogy or qiyas and he would refer he would refer to qiyas only in the case of necessity and that was what his teacher Imam Mashafi had taught him. Now if we look at these four Imams, one thing that we see very clearly is the close relationship that actually they had among one another. For example, Imam Malik, who had taken that knowledge that came from the time of the Prophet ﷺ through Omar, the Khalifa Amr and Abdullah bin Omar, and so forth, to their students until it finally reached Imam Malik. Imam Malik, as we saw, he was a teacher of a Shafi'i. He was also a teacher of Muhammad al-Hassan al shaybani he was also a teacher of Abu Yusuf. The two main students of, the, of Abu Hanifa. The two main students who along with Abu Hanifa really make up the Hanafi school of thought. And we see also that Imam al studied under Imam Malik. And he went to Iraq. And he met with... And he debated... And I mean, when I say debated, it was friendly debate or discourse, discussion with Muhammad al-Hassan al shaybani the main student of Abu Hanifa. And we see that again also Imam Ahmed studied under Abu, Abu Yusuf, the main student of Abu Hanifa, and then later in his life he studied under Imam al shafii So there was a very close relationship, there was a very close love and respect. If you look in the statements that they made of one another, there was a great deal of love and respect among these four great Imams. They respected each other because of their willingness to learn their sacrifices for learning. And their teaching the truth or teaching for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we find no kind of hatred, no kind of enmity, no kind of envy whatsoever existing among these four great leaders that existed in our history. And uh, unfortunately, due to the time... Uh, limitations. Actually, that is the time that I have uh, left for the lecture. There's obviously many, <clears throat> many other aspects that we should discuss. That should, or I'm sure that you think we should <laughs> discuss. So the aspects that you want to discuss in addition to this, like any further history or any other aspect related to the madhab, inshallah, you we'll put it in your questions and we'll try to. Do our best to to handle them, Inshallah. But uh, at this point, uh, as I said, because our time is up, this must be brother He's the only one who has a phone that I know uh, <laughs> rings like this. So, Inshallah, we'll stop at this point and we'll handle the questions then, Inshallah. <laughs> So i will start
0: with
1: one of the questions from uh, from Brisbane, <coughs> and I guess the uh, the brothers from Brisbane did not. Uh, uh, even I know, I know the brothers from Brisbane, the ones, most of them are listening, they're from the Maliki school. But I guess they didn't notice me talking about Malach and saying that, you know, you have to sacrifice for uh, coming to lectures and you should not be sitting at home in Brisbane and listening to this over the phone. You should come out to Melbourne or Sydney, whichever the case uh, might be. And those brothers who I'm talking to, they know exactly who they are.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: <coughs> the question here from Brisbane says, <coughs> there were more madhhabs in history. Why only four survived? Yes, that's true. Obviously, we just discussed uh, the four uh, major schools, but there were many other schools. Uh, Layth ibn Sa'ad, for example, had a school. In Egypt, uh, Al-Uzai had a school. A number of, uh, of different schools, but why the other schools did not survive? Basically, it was a matter of, of historical uh, circumstances or strength of the school or strength of the teacher of the school or strength of the students of the school. Like Imam Shafi said about the students of al He said that al was a greater vaqih or jurist than Imam Malik, but the students failed him. I mean, they failed in, uh, in passing on what... Uh, what he had taught and so forth. So uh, it is true that there were a number of different schools, and even even there's more actually than four that have kind of existed until today. But um, the four became the major ones. Uh, in the case of the Hanafi madhab, for example, it became the pretty much the the the, the madhab of the state of the Yusuf was the chief Qadi and he used to appoint only Hanafis actually, (laughs) only followers of his madhab as as Qudat or as as (coughs) judges. And that was one of the main reasons, uh, or one of the things that helped the uh, the Hanafi school survive. Uh, The Maliki school had very strong, Imam Malik had very strong students in particular who took his madhab to North Africa and Spain. And that's where his school survived and was passed on. And of course, Imam Shafi is the same. And actually, Imam Ahmed, Ahmed's school almost died out. Uh, one of the, a couple of the scholars, of the Hanbali scholars writing in, uh, in Syria, a few centuries after Imam Ahmed, he said, this school is practically, uh, practically dead. And he said, the reason this school is dead, I <laughs> like what he wrote, he said, that when you, when you study the, the Hanbali school, or when you study the, the other schools, you become a judge, you become father, you become a teacher. In other words, you become, you get position of money and so forth. And you become, when you study the Hanbali school, he said, you become zaher or you become someone who, who, uh, who gives up the aspects of this world. So he said everybody seeks after the other three schools, and he just leaves the Hanbali school behind. But uh, it did survive, and it has survived, of course, until uh, until today. <coughs> and there are a lot of a uh, lot of questions about what if there is a difference of opinion among the scholars? Uh, should you have to follow your madhab, or what? What should you follow? And actually, on this. Uh, on this point there's a number of different opinions uh, among the scholars about what a person should do however what is clear from the Quran and what is clear from the Sunnah of the Prophet that we are obliged in the Quran and in the Sunnah of the Prophet as Allah has mentioned many times in the Quran that our absolute obedience our unconditional obedience is to Allah and His Messenger. In fact Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. Ya ayu Allah wa Rasul wa uli amri minkum. And all you who believe obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those in authority among you. And the, the word to obey or the command to obey has been stated before Allah. And has been stated before the Messenger's name. Or before the mention of the Messenger. And it was not stated in front of those people in authority among you. And some of the Mufassireen, they point out that the reason that is the case is because absolute and unconditional obedience goes to Allah and His Messenger. And it does not go to those in authority among you. We only obey those in authority among you when what they have ordered us to do does not go against the Qur'an or the Sunnah of the Prophet. And the verse continues, فَإِن تَنَزَّعْتُمْ فِي إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولُّ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمَ الْأَخِرِ Uh, uh, If you differ in any matter, then you should take that matter back to Allah and the Messenger, if you uh, truly believe uh, in Allah and, and the last day. So, when we have a difference of opinion, our first obligation is to obey Allah and to obey the Messenger. So, what this means is, if there is a case where you are following a specific opinion, and you are convinced, you are convinced that that opinion is not correct. You are convinced that that opinion goes against the Quran or goes against the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم. For example, you are following an opinion and then some scholars whom you trust, you have no reason to doubt they show you, you know, this is the opinion that you follow, it's based on certain such reasoning, but that reasoning is wrong and this is the correct opinion. And so you are convinced that the opinion that you are following is wrong, and you are convinced that the other opinion is the opinion that is correct according to the Quran Sunnah, then it becomes obligatory upon you to follow <coughs> the opinion that you believe is correct according to the Quran Sunnah. As I said, our first obligation, our first obligation, is to obey Allah and His Messenger. We have no obligation, as such, to obey Abu Hanifa, to, or to follow Abu Hanifa, or to follow Malik, or to follow Shafi or to follow Ahmad. We must follow uh, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and, and the Messenger. So, any time we are convinced that some opinion that we're following is goes against the uh, Quran or the Sunnah, then we must leave that opinion and follow the opinion that is correct according to what I was <coughs> Yeah, if the questions get too difficult, don't be surprised if my voice has, a, by coincidence, leaves me, <coughs> and we have to stop the question and answer session. Okay, this question. Uh, I'm not sure what is the point it is uh, getting to, but anyway, the question says, can you ex- can you please explain how do the current yin differ in their practice than? Than a Muslim who follows one particular madhab. Uh, basically, I think there's some. Uh, I think there's some points that we need to to clarify, and one of these points uh, is with, with respect to following a specific madhab and uh, whether or not it is obligatory to follow a specific madhab, and what is the issue really of following a madhab and so forth. (coughs) (coughs) And on this point, I just want to, um, you know, just highlight some issues, because in fact that is, you you could, you know, say that that is a different lecture in itself. First of all, let us discuss the question of, of, is it obligatory, is it mandatory upon a Muslim to follow one of these four different madhabs? One of these four different madhabs. As I just alluded to, there is no evidence whatsoever that a Muslim has to follow one of these four different madhabs. And in fact, well, let us get to the the second question: Is it permissible, is it permissible to follow one of these four different madhabs? And even on that question, some ulama, some you could say, on one extreme, even on that question, some ulama say it is not allowed to follow one of these four different uh, madhabs. But the most, the majority of the scholars say it is allowed to follow one of these four different madhab. If someone chooses to follow one of these four uh, different madhab, no one can really say that he is wrong in doing so. With the condition, with the condition that he does not put his madhab over and above the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in fact, if you are really going to follow these madhab basically we have statements from the founders of all of these madhahab that if there is an authentic hadith or if there is any one of their statements that goes against the Quran and Sunnah, then you must give up their statements, you must not follow what they have stated but instead you must follow the Quran and the, and the authentic hadith of Muhammad Sallallahu So in fact if you are going to follow these Madahab or these imams and truly follow them and follow them uh, to the nth degree, as the brother mentioned the other day, that means that if there is an authentic hadith that goes against what he has said, then you must ignore what he has said and follow that authentic hadith. Now, obviously, when we make statements of that nature, or when those scholars make statements of that nature you are talking about a particular or they are talking towards a particular group of people. And this is a point that many people don't seem to to understand. That when the when these scholars are making these kinds of statements, they are really talking to those people who can or have the ability or have the basic knowledge. Those people who you consider knowledge or students of arm or whatever However you'd want to describe it. In other words, those people who can, who have the knowledge and the ability to distinguish between a strong opinion and a weak opinion. Who have the uh, ability to, to distinguish between what seems to be correct according to Quran and Sunnah and what does not seem to be correct according to Sunnah. Those people are obliged And they are taught by those imams that they cannot follow those imams and anything that they find goes against the Quran and Sunnah. But now the question is, what about those people who don't have that kind of knowledge? Well, if someone doesn't have that kind of knowledge... If he's what they call a a, co- a commoner, let's say
0: <coughs>
1: one of the awam then let's uh, let's put the issue frankly now. Who is this person actually following? The one who is actually not a scholar who is not actually studying the text and studying the books. In reality, he is following his teacher, or is giving—he is following the one who is giving him the fatwas. You cannot actually say that he is following the Hanafi madhab or the Shafi madhab, because in reality, he doesn't even have the knowledge to recognize what is the Hanafi madhab and the Shafi madhab. He is actually just following the the uh, madhab or the teaching that he is getting from his teacher who he trusts, or the fatwa or the mufti, that he is going and asking questions. That is actually his madhhab. Because he doesn't have the knowledge, so he has to go and ask someone, and when that person gives him an answer, he has to follow and apply that answer. So he, in reality, does not have a madhab. He is not an, actual, uh, an actuality following the Hanafi madhab or the Shafi madhab even though he will claim or say for himself that he is Hanafi or Shafi and so forth. But without having the knowledge of what is the Hanafi and Shafi madhab, so forth, and so forth, and then, in fact, and you cannot really be claiming to follow one of those four schools. And even with respect to these madhab, and this is why, this, I mean, it doesn't make much sense the kind of division, the kind of hatred that we have seen among the Muslim Ummah in the past centuries, with respect to the different madhahab. To the point that even in the haram, even in Mecca itself, they used to have four different places for Imam from each one of the madhahab to lead the salah. And the different schools, or the different followers of the different schools would not pray behind the other imams. When the Hanafi time came, they would pray, the Hanafis would pray from that position, and then the Shafis would pray next, and then the Malikis and so forth. I mean, it even came to the point that a scholar was asked if it is permissible for a Hanafi man to marry a Shafi'i woman. And this was debated. And one of the scholars was able to answer that question because he said, Well, since it is allowed to marry the woman from the Ahlul Kitab, it must be allowed to marry a Shafi'i woman. Of course, if you take his logic a little bit further, then it's not allowed for a Hanafi woman to marry a Shafi man because it's not allowed for a woman or from a, a Muslim woman to marry a man from Ahi But when you think about really what is, the, what, is the, what is the what is what even is the Hanafi opinion, and you see that this kind of division, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And in Boulder, we have classes on, on Usul al fiqh We've been doing it for years, different classes. And supposedly, we have brothers, like those two sitting in, in uh, Brisbane right now, who are like from the Maliki background. And then we have brothers from Hanafi background. And then we have Hanafi, uh, you know, all the different Madahab represented. And usually, when I ask them, if I, when, I, when I present an issue, and I say, what do you think is correct on this issue?, Most of the time, they'll give an answer that goes against the madhab that they claim to follow. And in fact, Ibn Abidin, and this is true for every madhab, this is true for every madhab, every madhab has changed a lot since the time of the founding. And Ibn Abidin, one of the leading Hanafi scholars of the last century, writing in in the introduction to Hashid Ibn Abidin, uh, a standard book of fiqh among the Hanafis now he said that and you cannot even it's very difficult to identify what is the Hanafi Madhhab. and you cannot rely he said you cannot rely on those later books for what is the Hanafi Madhhab. and he gave one example he said it was the opinion of Abu Hanifa that it is not allowed to take wages (coughs) to get paid. (coughs) It was the opinion of Abu Hanifa that it is not allowed to be paid to teach the Quran. And if you're gonna be taught if you I mean to if you're gonna be in a position where you're teaching the Quran, you should not accept wages for that. So his students, Abu Yusuf and Muhammad, (coughs) or some of the later scholars, I don't remember now exactly. They said that in our times, if we do not allow these people to get paid for teaching the Quran, teaching Islamic science and so forth, then nobody is going to be able to do it. So as a case of necessity, or due to dire need, they said it is permissible for someone to get paid... To teach the Qur'an. So Ibn Abidin, he, he, he studies the development of this idea. And then he said sometime, a few centuries later, a Hanafi scholar made the mistake, he says, of taking this opinion. That it is okay to get wages for teaching the Qur'an due to the necessity. He came to the conclusion that therefore it's also permissible to take wages for just reciting the Qur'an. As they have in, in certain parts of the world. For example, if someone dies, they'll bring someone to recite the Qur'an as a kind of barakah for the person to get ajr. And they'll pay the person. So the, this Hanafi scholar and those who, all those who followed after him, they said it is allowed, according to us Hanafis, to be paid to read the Qur'an, just to recite the Qur'an. And this was a misunderstanding and a misapplication of what the earlier Hanafis said with respect to being taught, uh, being paid for teaching the Qur'an. There is a necessity of being paid for teaching the Qur'an, but there's no necessity for anyone to be paid just for reciting the Qur'an. So Ibn Abidin traces how this has become now the Hanafi madhab. Originally Abu Hanifa said you cannot even get paid for teaching the Quran. And then some of his students, because of necessity, they said you may be paid for teaching the Quran. And then it became in the later books that you may be paid just for reciting the Quran. And this kind of thing happened in every, every madhab. You can find opinions in every madhab and every one of the later books that go completely against what their founder and what their earliest followers said. <coughs> so when we talk about the issue of, of, of blindly or or you know attaching ourselves to a madhab and saying we're going to follow this madhab and this is my madhab, we have to realize that even just identifying what is the madhab itself is not even an easy issue. And identifying what is the correct opinion among the... within the madhab itself. Imam Nawi has a book in which he describes all the differences of opinion among the Shafi's themselves. And he tries to determine what is the strongest opinion among the Shafi's according to the principles of the Imam shafi So in reality, it's almost impossible... To determine even what is the Hanafi Madhab, what is the Shafi Madhab, especially on issues nowadays that never occurred during the time of Abu Hanif or or, Imam Ahmed or Shafi or Malik or whatever. So it is much better to take the approach that we have the intention to follow the Quran and Sunnah. And we benefit from these people and we take their teachings and we learn from them, but we insist and we do our best to follow the Quran and Sunnah by turning to those scholars whom we trust, who act by the Quran and Sunnah, and accepting uh, their conclusions, especially when they give us convincing arguments uh, for their conclusions. And I have no idea what the question was that got me into all that. (coughs) But there's one... And this is related to the next question. But there's one aspect of these different madhab which is very important. And which, and in reality, probably will never be able to do away with. And that is the most important contribution of these different madhab. And these scholars is not the fiqh conclusions that they made. But it is the reasoning or the methodology that they use. What is known as the the usul, the methodology that they use. And they differed in their methodology. You know, some people you read, sometimes uh, there's one book in particular about the history of the different madhab in in English. And in the last chapter, the author is kind of giving the idea of of, you know, we should put aside these madhhab differences, and we should come up with one unified madhhab. And to be frank, I mean, this is really an oversimplification of what the different madhhab are all about. And this is virtually something impossible, impossible to do because you will not be able to convince everybody to follow the same principles of
0: Islam. In conclusion, we ask Allah that He brings you benefit through this lecture. For more information, you may contact us through the following address. The Islamic Propagation Office, Rabwa, P.O. Box 29465, Riyal 11457. Saudi Arabia, phone 445-4900, also 491-6065, fax 497-0126. If you would like to listen to more beneficial lectures, feel free to visit our website at www.islamhouse.com.